Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. The last few months, we have been going through the book of Proverbs verse by verse, and hopefully you have found that beneficial, this bit of wisdom literature, just like all wisdom literature, is meant to answer the question, how should I live? What's the wisest way to conduct myself in this world? And we are at the point in the book of Proverbs where we are reading the Proverbs that have been collected by the men of Hezekiah, who was then king of Judah. And fortunately for us, from an organizational standpoint, the scribes of Hezekiah grouped these particular Proverbs according to their heading, according to their topics. And we are in chapter 26 of the book of Proverbs, and the topic of this whole chapter is a fool, what a fool is like, what a fool does, and what is the best reaction to a fool? How should we best react to somebody who is demonstrating their own foolishness? I think we've all grown up knowing the phrase, don't answer a fool after his folly, in other words, don't respond to a fool according to his foolishness. Don't play his game. Don't go along with his premises. Otherwise, you yourself are going to look equally foolish. Well, that idea, that concept comes from chapter 26 of the book of Proverbs. So let's dive right in, starting right at verse 1. This proverb begins with a bit of an absurdity like snow in summer. I mean, it doesn't snow in summer. Typically, it's too hot for snow. Or like rain in harvest. In other words, there are certain things that just are not appropriate for the time of year in which they might occur. You wouldn't have snow during the summer. And harvest is the time when everything is finally ripe, finally drying, the last thing you want is sudden torrential rain during that time. So both of those events would be inappropriate given the circumstances, given the time of year. But the same way that those things are inappropriate, the second half of this proverb says, honor is not fitting for a fool. If a king wanted to honor somebody, we certainly see a demonstration of it, like in the book of Esther. You know, a king could... Let somebody ride on their horse or their mule, put the king's ring on them, put the king's robe on them, even put a crown on their head. All of those things would be demonstrations of honor to a particular person. But Solomon says that a fool should not get that kind of honor, primarily because a fool is not somebody that you want other people looking up to. You don't want people following in that level of foolishness. So the chapter starts right out sort of setting the tone. Like snow in summer, like rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Verse 2 then says, like a sparrow in its flitting, 
like a swallow in its flying. Well, both of those examples of birds are birds either in flight or birds jumping around, flitting around. They're not settled any place. Their feet are not standing firmly on the ground. And so Solomon says, like a sparrow or like a swallow in its flying, so a curse without cause does not alight. That NASB word alight simply means that it doesn't really stick the landing. A curse, a statement made about somebody else, a way of talking bad about somebody or putting somebody down, particularly if those words are meant to cause them damage, to bring about some curse in their life, that curse is not going to stick if there's no cause for the curse, if the curse is just idle gossip, if the curse is given just for the sake of trying to do harm for somebody else, if there isn't some substance to it, if there isn't some reality to it, some cause for the curse to be around, it never really sticks. It never really lands. It's like a bird, a flighty bird, a flittering bird, a flying bird. That's the example that Solomon used in order to say that those kinds of curses don't matter. In other words, it doesn't matter what people say about you unless what they're saying about you is actually accurate. These days, with the advent of social media, I think we have all seen things said about ourselves that we, that we think, well, that's not right, that's not accurate. Certainly, if you're somebody like myself, who publicly proclaims the gospel of Christ, who publicly teaches the Bible, you're going to get a certain amount of negative feedback. I certainly get my fair share. And at some point, you have to learn to grow a thick skin and just carry on doing what you know is proper, knowing that the accusations of other people, that the curses that other people might attempt to put on you, are empty. They're not really going to gain any substance. Now, usually what happens to us is that we're afraid when we hear something, when we see something negative about ourselves, we're fearful that other people are also going to read it or see it or hear it and then are going to think less of us. But the people who really know us, the people who understand us, are not going to be quickly dissuaded because of somebody else's opinion, especially if that opinion is based on nothing at all, if it's based on some kind of hearsay or some kind of gossip. So that's what Solomon is getting at. Like a sparrow when he's flitting around, like a swallow in its long-distance flying, those birds don't touch the ground, and in the same way, a curse without cause does not alight. Verse 3, then, says that punishment is appropriate for a fool. In other words, a fool who's living foolishly is ultimately going to do things that need correction, that require correction. So, a whip is for a horse, a bridle is for a donkey, those two implements are necessary in order to train those animals in the same way. And a rod is for the back of fools. 
Now, of course, as we've been reading through the book of Proverbs, we've come across that idea before. If you go back to Proverbs 23.9, you're going to come across that phrase, the idea that a rod is for the back of fools, because fools necessarily need correction. They not only need to be withstood in the damage that they might be doing, but they also need to be readjusted. They need to be corrected. And therefore, a rod is made for the back of a fool the same way that a whip is used for a horse or a bridle is used for a donkey. Those are all training implements in order to hopefully teach a fool how to be less foolish. So then, after those three comparisons, we finally get to verse 4, which says... Do not answer a fool according to his folly. In other words, don't reply to foolishness with more foolishness. The correct way to reply to foolishness is with appropriate wisdom, giving an appropriate answer at an appropriate time. Solomon has been stressing throughout this book the necessity of knowing the right thing to say and having the wisdom to actually say it. But if you entertain other people's foolishness, and then you reply to it as if that foolishness actually has some substance to it, as if it deserves an answer rather than deserving a correction, well, then you're giving validity to that foolish idea, and you're giving validity to the fool himself which is why the second half of that verse says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. If you answer a fool foolishly, you're also a fool. Instead, verse 5 says, Answer a fool as his folly deserves. Now, the NASB has added that word deserves, but that appears to be the implication of what Solomon was getting at. When you answer a fool, you don't answer him according to his folly, but rather you answer a fool the way his folly deserves. That may be correction. That may be pointing out his error. That may be just demonstrating that you're not willing to go along with his foolishness. You're not willing to entertain those kind of foolish ideas. And by the way, that kind of thinking, I think, applies even in our modern apologetics. Sometimes, because we want to defend the Bible, because we want to defend God, we want to defend what we believe, the natural tendency is to try to give an answer to every foolish question or bit of conjecture that comes our way. But sometimes what people are saying and what people are thinking is just so wrong, so negative, so derogatory, so God-hating, that those things don't really deserve a reply. Sometimes the best way that we can correct such foolishness is to let people know that we're not willing to engage that kind of insulting talk or that kind of effort to put God on trial. We have to continue to stand our ground, recognizing who God is, 
and that we fallen creatures can't comprehend the perfection and the magnificence of the God of the Bible. And therefore, we need to be careful that in trying to answer the opposition, that we don't start entertaining their idea as if their idea has legitimacy. Because when we do that, not only are we answering the fool according to his folly, but we're also acting like we're also willing to engage such foolish arguments. Rather, we should answer a fool as his folly deserves. And sometimes, foolishness doesn't deserve your time, your effort, or a reply. Because the second half of verse 5 says, if you answer a fool according to his folly, that he will begin to think that he is wise. He will become wise in his own eyes, in his own estimation. You have to be discerning. You have to be wise in the way that you reply to foolish ideas, foolish people, foolish questions. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, last week in chapter 25, we read in verse 13 that a faithful message was a refreshment to the person who actually sent that messenger. It reads, like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Chapter 26, verse 6, is the direct opposite of that idea. It says, He cuts off his own feet and drinks violence, who sends a message by the hand of a fool. So once again, Solomon is using absurd language. People would not cut off their own feet. Nobody ever just sat down and decided to lop off their own feet. And people don't typically drink violence. They don't consume it happily. They try to avoid violence. But the same way that engaging in either of those activities is a bad idea, Solomon also says, you're just as foolish, just as absurd, just as senseless if you send a fool to carry your message, because a fool is not going to carry your message faithfully. He may not even get to the place where you've sent him. He is certainly likely to impose his own thoughts and opinions on your message, and he's going to make a great deal of himself for being a messenger to somebody as important as the king. So being a faithful messenger requires wisdom, trustworthiness, selflessness, the ability to listen, and the ability to convey the message faithfully. But if you send your message via a fool, well, that is tantamount to sitting down and sawing off your own feet. Now, Proverbs, as I've been saying repeatedly since we began going through this book, Proverbs are sayings, little tidbits of wisdom. Each proverb, standing by itself, 
is meant to convey some bit of good counsel, some bit of wisdom, some bit of training, some bit of correction in righteousness, some way of teaching somebody else how to grow appropriately. That is what a proverb is made for. That is what a proverb is designed to do. So then it's virtually impossible to imagine that a fool, given all of the description that we have read so far of foolishness, it's impossible to believe that a fool is going to suddenly speak these words of wisdom. First off, they don't comprehend them. Secondly, if they made up their own proverbs, they're making them up out of their own foolish imaginations. And so a proverb from a fool is nothing more than foolishness. Well, that's what Solomon gets at in verse 7. Like the legs which hang down from the lame, so is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Solomon's very pointed comparison is, if a man is lame, if a man has been struck lame, he still has legs usually. The legs are just simply useless. They're not doing the very thing they were intended to do. And that's what it's like when a fool attempts to speak a proverb. The mouth of a fool doesn't have the ability to speak wisdom, doesn't have the ability to speak proper correction to other people, to instruct other people. So in the same way that lame legs are useless, proverbs from the mouth of a fool are equally useless. Now, when we began this chapter, looking at verse 1, we saw that like the snow in summer, like the rain in harvest, that's what honor is like to a fool. It's simply not fitting. It's not appropriate. Verse 8 is going to resume that idea. Like one who binds a stone in a sling, so is he who gives honor to a fool. The comparison that Solomon has drawn is, if you put a stone in a sling, the whole purpose of it is to be able to sling it. You have to be able to spin that sling and then fling that rock. But if you were to bind the stone inside the sling, if it got caught up in the sling itself, or you purposefully wrapped it up in the sling, well, then the sling becomes purposeless, useless, because no matter how much you might like to fling that stone at someone or your enemy or an animal, it, it, the stone's not coming out. You've bound the stone into the sling, therefore rendering the sling to be absolutely useless. Well, that's what it's like when somebody gives inappropriate honor to a fool. It's useless. It's pointless. And so Solomon was trying to think of something that was equally useless, equally pointless. And that's why he said, if you bind a stone in a sling, well, that's useless. So is he who gives honor to a fool. And then returning to the idea of a fool speaking Proverbs, in attempting to find something to compare it to, Solomon says it's like a thorn which falls into the hand of a drunkard. In other words, 
If somebody is out drunk, they're likely to fall down. If they fall into a thicket or a thorn bush, they're going to get a thorn pierced into their hand. They're going to wake up the next day and wonder what in the world happened to them. In other words, it's just pain inflicted on somebody who just doesn't know any better. Like a thorn, which falls into the hand of a drunkard, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. The truth is, none of us want thorns or splinters in our hands. Therefore, we're usually careful to protect ourselves and make sure that we don't get thorns or splinters or thistles in our hands. That is a good bit of wisdom on our part. But a person who is drunk has lost wisdom. He's lost his ability to make sensible, good choices. And as a consequence, when he wakes up from his drunkenness, he might have any number of thorns or splinters in his hand because he's lost control. He's lost the ability to make good decisions because, after all, he is a fool. Well, in that same way, as a thorn ending up in the hand of a drunkard, that's what a proverb in the mouth of a fool is. And then verse 10, I can't help it, is just quite amusing. Solomon has used many colorful phrases in order to describe foolishness. But I think verse 10 includes one of my favorites. Like an archer who wounds everyone. <laughs> There's two ways that you can look at that. An archer, somebody who shoots arrows. The purpose of an archer in a war is to shoot the enemy and kill them, ideally. But if he's a bad archer, if he's not very good at it, he's only going to wound them, which is not going to stop the enemy's advance. Or he might be saying he is such a bad archer that he can't tell friend from foe and ends up just firing arrows indiscriminately and hurting everybody. He wounds everybody. Either way, Solomon has described a really bad archer. And so is he who hires a fool or who hires those who pass by. So if you're looking to hire somebody to work in your field, to work in your shop, if you're looking to pay somebody a wage in order to do some work for you. If you just go out into the street and you just pick the first random person who goes by, you're not showing any kind of discernment there. You haven't checked to find out whether they're capable of doing the thing you're asking them to do. You don't know if they're a thief, if they're just going to take their paycheck and abscond with it without actually having done the work. And you don't know if they're going to do the work really badly. If you hire a fool or you hire someone who's just passing by, well, then that's as silly as an archer who doesn't really know how to shoot properly because he's either going to simply wound people instead of killing them or he's going to wound everybody. And I actually like that interpretation a little more than the first. The idea of a willy-nilly archer wounding everybody is just plain amusing. And then verse 11 is going to sound very familiar to anybody who knows their New Testament. It says, 
like a dog that returns to its vomit, is a fool who repeats his folly. Look, the reality is, everybody makes mistakes. That's just part of our human existence and our fallen condition. We all make errors. Occasionally, we all stick our foot in our mouth. Occasionally, we all do damage we didn't mean to do. Occasionally, we all suffer from the errors that we ourselves have made. But the key to it is not how many mistakes you've made. It's what you've learned from those mistakes. Are you able to pick yourself up and go again and recognize that that actually was a mistake? And then be more cautious the next time. Speak more appropriately. Work more diligently. In other words, when you've made a mistake, what did you learn from that? I remember as a kid that sometimes I would do something extra stupid. Like once, I was with my mom and dad. We were in Texas at the time. And they were showing me a cactus. And they said, that's really sharp. Don't touch it. And so, of course, what did I have to do? Well, I had to lay my hands on it immediately because I had been told not to. My dad's response to my yelping in pain was to say to me, well, you won't do that again. And that's correct. I wouldn't do that again because I learned the lesson. I learned the lesson the hard way, but I did learn from it. I gained new knowledge. Well, that, according to Solomon, is not the way that a fool is. A fool will not only do something foolish, but then will learn nothing and return to his foolishness. He'll do the same thing, make the same mistake time and time again. The same way that a dog's vomit has no value. And yet the dog will return to it? The dog will go back to it? Well, that's the same way that a fool will go back to his empty, useless, pointless lessons. He'll make his mistakes. He'll be foolish. And rather than learn from his folly, he'll end up going back to it and doing it again. Now, as I mentioned before, if you're at all familiar with your New Testament, that phrase, a dog returning to his vomit, is going to sound familiar to you. It is a bit of a Hebraism that the Apostle Peter himself picks up in his second epistle. In fact, it's Second Peter 2.22. This is the end of an extended treatise from Peter where he's talking about the ungodly and the way that they act and the way that they think. Starting at verse 12, he describes them as, But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, 
having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a dumb donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water, and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice, by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, a pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. So when looking at those who have opposed themselves to the things of God, and especially those who have given some evidence or some pretense that they actually are convinced by and adhering to the things of God, if those people return back to their wickedness, they are like a dog that returns to his own vomit, which is not only a useless thing, but something to be rejected. It's not to be kept for any good reason. So Peter finds confirmation of that idea in the Proverbs of Solomon, and even takes the time to say, this is a true proverb. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. So, Proverbs 26, verse 12 now. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That's part of Solomon's thinking about not answering a fool after his folly, because you give him the opportunity to think that he is wise in his own eyes, in his own estimation. Some of the most foolish arguments I have ever heard from people came from people who thought they were really smart. If you find someone who is wise in his own eyes, somebody who doesn't understand that they need to learn, they need to absorb wisdom, they need to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, they need to come to a genuine fear and reverence of God, if they are completely self-satisfied within themselves, well, that's somebody who's become wise in their own eyes, and Solomon says there is more hope for a fool than for him. Okay, so Solomon has kind of described stages of foolishness here. 
He has said, there is a fool, somebody who has no wisdom, somebody who does not accept instruction or correction, somebody who continues to make the same mistakes over and over. But then there's something even worse than somebody like that, even worse than just a fool who's foolish. And what's worse than that is somebody who is completely egocentrically self-centered, somebody who is completely engaged in their own supposed wisdom, and somebody who thinks that the words that fall out of their lips are like jewels and diamonds. A person wise in their own estimation is usually not a person who is wise in the things of God. And only wisdom in the things of God count for actual wisdom, because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, the reverence of God. And so if somebody is God-forsaking, if somebody is an enemy of God, and yet they're very impressed with themselves, Solomon says, that's even worse than a fool. At least for a fool, you might hold out some kind of hope that if you were to instruct them, if you were to direct them, that maybe they could learn valuable lessons. But somebody who is completely self-engaged, somebody who is impressed with themselves, who thinks that they're the smartest person in every room they walk in, somebody who sees themselves as completely self-sufficient and who relies on their own thoughts and their own opinions in all circumstances, Solomon says that person is even worse than a fool. And I think it's because that kind of person would be impossible to instruct, impossible to bring along in the things of God because they think they already know it. And they only reject the things that they think it makes sense to reject. And they only accept the things that they can imagine accepting in their own minds. And that makes them worse than a fool. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes. There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now, the next proverb talks about a sluggard and starts right off using a phrase that we've already seen before. Back in chapter 22 of the book of Proverbs, verse 12, we read, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. And back when we looked at that, I explained that Solomon is saying a sluggard, somebody who doesn't want to go out and do the work, somebody who doesn't want to leave the comfort of his house, is going to make excuses. And his excuses are usually absurd. His excuses are pointless. He'll just give himself any excuse he can to avoid doing the necessary work. So, chapter 26, verse 13 says, The sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. Not only is the sluggard making excuses, but he's trying to claim that there is some amount of wisdom to his sluggardly ways. Because if he were to go out into the streets, he would clearly be devoured. He'd be destroyed by the lion and so it's only wise, it's only smart to stay in place, stay where I am, don't go out, don't do the work. 
but the very fact that Solomon has identified him as a sluggard tells you what kind of a person's being described here. It's a lazy person. It's a person who's not willing to do the necessary work in order to gain the rewards that he would desire. As verse 14 says, As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. We all know how doors work. Doors have to have a hinge that they can rotate on in order for a door to open and close, and that's been the way of doors for a long time. And the same way that the opening and closing door rotates on its hinge, Solomon says that's what a sluggard is like on his bed. He just rolls over and rolls over again and rolls over again, just continually rotating on his bed rather than standing upright and going out and doing the work. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, says verse 15. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. Okay, now Solomon is explaining the absurdity of truly lazy people. He describes them as someone who, even though they're hungry, the effort that it takes to put their hand in a dish is all the effort that they can expend. Once they have picked up whatever is in the dish, they can't quite get it to their mouth because they're, they're so tired of that movement of their arm back and forth from the dish to their mouth. And so Solomon is describing, in rather absurd terminology here, he is describing how lazy people view effort, how they view the expectations and the requirements that people may put on them. They're willing to bury their hand in the dish, but, oh, it is just so wearisome to have to bring your hand all the way back to your mouth again in order to chew what you've just picked up. Verse 16, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. And that goes back to what I was saying about verse 13. Not only is a sluggard really good at making excuses, but he thinks his excuses mean something. He thinks they're valid. He thinks it's a demonstration of his own wisdom or cleverness when instead of getting up and getting busy, he concocts some new excuse to avoid work. And that avoidance, they consider to be a show of wisdom, a show of cleverness on their part. And so the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than even seven men who might come and give him good advice, which is what that discreet answer phrase means. Somebody that can give him wisdom, somebody who can speak some actual intelligence into his life, He's not going to listen to them. He's going to make excuses for his own behavior, and then he's going to be satisfied with those excuses. In his own mind, in his own brain, he's going to think that he has demonstrated his own wisdom, his own cleverness, in the fact that he can continually come up with excuses for the fact that he is lazy and a sluggard. So let's put all those verses together 
and I think we'll get a good feel for what Solomon is telling us about sluggards. Starting at verse 13, the sluggard says, there is a lion in the road, a lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Altogether, then, that means sluggards are good at making excuses for their own laziness. And that takes us to verse 18. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, Was I not joking? That particular proverb really hits home with me. Through the years, I have known people who willingly do a tremendous amount of damage with their tongues, with their lips, and then after the damage is done, they'll say something to excuse themselves and to throw off any responsibility for what they just said. And the most common phrase they'll use is, I was just joking. But by the time that you get around to the phrase, I was just joking, the damage is done. Well, that damage, according to Solomon, is like a crazy person, like a madman who's throwing around firebrands. Okay, firebrands are bound up stalks that are used for the purpose of setting fires. And you certainly don't go about just throwing firebrands anywhere and everywhere because they are going to light fires, especially if you're in a city. One of the most dangerous things that you can do is throw around fire. It would take a genuine madman to start throwing around firebrands or arrows, because as you're just shooting arrows randomly, you're going to hit people, you're going to hurt people, and the result is going to be death. And so Solomon takes that imagery of a madman, a crazy person, who is throwing firebrands and arrows, resulting in death, and he's doing it with no thought of consequences because he's a madman. Solomon says, that's what it's like when a man deceives somebody else, lies to somebody else, speaks ill of somebody else, bears false witness against somebody else, does damage to somebody else, and then follows it up with, I was just joking. I knew someone years ago who used to just tear people up. For some reason, they apparently thought that was their station in life, to correct other people all the time and put other people down. And then when they were called on it, they would say, hey, can't you take a joke? And it wasn't a joke. It was damage. Damage as real as firebrands, arrows, and death. I guess in some ways it's reassuring to know 
that there were people like that back in Solomon's day, because there's certainly people like that to this very day. People who are willing to do the damage, they're so enamored with themselves, they're so caught up in their own egocentric sense of wisdom, that they're willing to be really mean to other people, and they're even willing to lie or to deceive their neighbors, their brethren, their friends. And then when they get called on it, they make excuses for themselves. Oh, I didn't mean anything by it. Oh, you took that all completely wrong. Oh, no, I was just joking. What's wrong with you? They'll turn it on you. What's wrong with you? Can't you take a joke? Solomon says, those are like madmen. And then verse 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. Okay, that's a truism. If you don't keep stoking a fire, a fire eventually will go out. You got to keep putting wood on the fire. If there's a lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. The same way that a fire goes out, if you don't keep stoking the fire, if there's nobody backbiting, if there's nobody gossiping, that's what it means to say the whisperer, somebody who will tell tales about other people, somebody who shares secrets, things that were meant to be secret in the first place. If there is no such person in your midst, if there is no such backbiting, whispering, gossiping, secret-telling person in your midst, well, then there's going to be less contention among you and your friends because you're all going to trust each other. And you're going to know that your secrets are safe with each other because there's nobody in your midst who has the reputation of being a talebearer. And once you gain that reputation, once people think of you as someone who is not trustworthy, not only are they going to stop sharing secrets with you, they're going to avoid you because they never really know what kind of damage you might do. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. If you have some hot embers, the last remaining remnants of a fire that is slowly burning out, and you throw some charcoal on it, or you throw some wood on it, you're going to stir that fire and that heat back up. That's what Solomon compares to a contentious person, a contentious person, an argumentative person, is going to kindle more arguments, more strife, more ill-feeling, the same way that more wood keeps the fire going. I think we all know that it is very hard to rest at ease. It is very difficult to feel comfortable when somebody is in your midst 
who is just always argumentative, always difficult, always looking for some way that they can correct other people, that they can talk about other people, or that they can argue with other people. That sort of contentious person starts all kinds of emotional fires, as very real, as very heated, as any charcoal to hot embers, as any wood into a burning fire. In fact, verse 22 says, The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. In other words, not only is a gossip guilty, not only is the backbiting, contentious person guilty, but if you have a whisperer in your midst, somebody who can't keep secrets, somebody who can't wait to tell you the latest scoop of what they know about somebody else, especially if it's something that might put the other person in a questionable light. There's something in our nature that wants to hear that. Oh, what do you know? Or what did that person say? What did they say about me, especially? And the same way that dainty morsels, which are like little sweet desserts, pieces of candy, the same way that you will pop those into your mouth and then they become part of you. That's the same way that we desire to know those secrets that a whisperer is carrying. So, the same way that we're not supposed to answer a fool after his folly because it's going to make him feel like he's wise in his own estimation, we're giving tacit approval of his arguments if we engage his arguments. In the same way, even though we know that people should not be gossips, they should not be whisperers, they should be trustworthy, they should keep secrets, nevertheless, we actually encourage the gossiping, we encourage the tale-bearing and the whispering by the very fact that we want to hear it. And our desire to hear it gives credibility to the whisperer. It also helps puff them up in their self-estimation because they realize that when they're carrying information about somebody else, then other people want to engage with them. Other people want to hear what it is they have to say. It makes them feel self-important. So in the whole whispering, gossiping, tale-bearing scenario, both the person who is speaking and the person who is listening are both guilty. But it's our natural tendency to want to know. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. Once you hear something bad about somebody else, you can't get rid of it. It becomes part of you. It becomes part of your knowledge. It becomes part of your emotional response to those people. If you trusted them previously, and then you find out something negative about them, you're going to be much more cautious around them the next time. In other words, the same way that food, the same way that sugary substances become part of your biology, become part of your physical makeup, when you hear something passed on to you that you probably shouldn't have known in the first place, once a whisperer shares that with you, it becomes part of you. It becomes part of your working knowledge, 
and it can destroy the reputation of somebody else. And as you're listening to that whispering, you don't really know for sure whether that is an accurate depiction of what that other person really thought, really said, really did, because it has all been filtered through the mind, through the emotions, through the observation of the whisperer who is trying to come up with a story that you'll be engaged by. So, long and short of it is, don't be the whisperer and don't be the listener. Now, if you were paying close attention, you may have noticed that I skipped over verse 17 previously. And that's because I think verse 17 fits very well in this context. And it says, like one who takes a dog by the ears. If you've ever had a dog and you've ever tried to grab his ears, you know that that's a really bad idea. A dog will turn on you very quickly if you grab him by the ears. His ears are really, really sensitive. So Solomon is saying, that's a really bad idea. And he compares it to he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. If there is strife, if there is a disagreement, if there is an argument, if there is a difference between people and it has nothing to do with you, then stay out of it. And as often as not, when somebody is tail-bearing, when somebody is gossiping, when somebody is whispering and sharing another person's secrets, it's not because they're a close personal friend with that person and they want to make them look good in everybody's eyes. It's usually because they have something against that person and they're trying to get you on their side in the argument. They want to influence your thinking about that other person, especially if they know that you like the other person. Well, gee, wait until I tell you this. Maybe you won't hold them in such high esteem after you know this particular secret about them. It's a strife. It's a contention between two people that has nothing to do with you, but because you want to hear it, because the words of whisperers are like dainty morsels, then you end up being part of it. You end up meddling in a strife, in a disagreement, in an argument that really had nothing to do with you. It didn't belong to you to begin with. And now there you are, right in the very midst of the confrontation. So not only is that unwise, it's tantamount to grabbing a dog by the ears. Verse 23, then, let's see if we can just finish this chapter. Like an earthen vessel overlaid in silver dross are burning lips and a wicked heart. An earthenware vessel is a clay vessel. Clay vessels were used in a household for any number of things, but once they broke, that's it, you can't repair them. And so they were usually cast into a potter's field where all the broken pottery was cast. In other words, Solomon is starting with something that has no real value. And then he says, if you overlay it, not with silver, 
but with the dross that burned off the silver, in other words, the worthless parts. So you have a worthless vessel and you've overlaid it with worthless silver dross. He's trying to describe something that's genuinely worthless, something that has no actual value. And he says, that's what burning lips and a wicked heart are like. Okay, as much as he has talked about lips, we know that he's talking about your speech. And burning lips, we can only assume, means you can't keep your mouth shut. You can't wait to talk. You can't wait to tell people stuff. You can't wait to stir up the dirt. You can't wait to do the whispering. The same way that you may be stirred up emotionally and then your heart burns within you, if you can't wait to talk, you can't wait to tell people stuff, you have burning lips. And especially if you combine those burning lips with wickedness in your heart, the desire to do damage with your words. Look, even Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words will tell other people what's going on inside you, what you're really like, what you're really about. And if you use your lips, your tongue, in order to do damage to other people, in order to put other people down, in order to insult other people, in order to make yourself look better by comparison. If you're willing to do that, that demonstrates what's going on in your heart. You are egocentric in your heart, and your primary desire in life is to lift yourself up. But that constant talking of yours and that wickedness that goes on inside you, Solomon says, is worthless. It has no actual value. Not only does it not make you look good, it demonstrates that you really are foolish and wicked internally. So here we are again saying, boy, watch your mouth. Whether we're looking at it in the Old Testament or in James in the New Testament, it has come up repeatedly here in the book of Proverbs, we've just got to be so very careful with the things that we say and the damage that we do with our lips. Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross, are burning lips and a wicked heart. Now, sometimes people with wicked hearts, with wicked intentions to the things they say, will actually disguise their hatefulness with the things that they say. They might speak in flatteries. They might say things that look complimentary on their face, but are actually insulting. Like the phrase that is so popular among Southern women, I learned it after I moved here, when they'll say something about somebody else and then say, well, bless his heart. What they're actually doing is they have this kind of built-up hatred, this kind of wickedness in their heart, but then they use their lips to disguise it. Verse 24 says, he who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his own heart. Deceitful people are deceitful people all the time, every time. Wicked people are wicked people all the time, every time. And even though they might get practiced 
in disguising it with their words, in the end, they're never going to come to what true wisdom is. Ultimately, their complete self-centeredness is going to be demonstrated. It's going to show. He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart when he speaks graciously. Do not believe him, says verse 25, because you already know that's what he's like. He's already demonstrated to you that that's what he's about. So therefore, when he's complimentary to you, when he speaks graciously to you, don't believe him because deceitfulness is in his heart. Usually, when somebody is a known liar and then speaking kindly to you, it's because they can get something out of it. They're trying to sell you something or they're trying to undermine somebody else. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Now, when Solomon uses that phrase, there are seven abominations in his heart, he may be using the word seven as the idea of completion. He may be saying his heart is full of wickedness and abominable things, but we also know that in the book of Proverbs, Solomon has listed seven things that the Lord hates and has described the seventh as an abomination. So possibly it's even a reference to that previous proverb. Back in chapter 6, starting at verse 16, we read, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife or discord among brothers. Those seven things fit very perfectly with everything else we've been reading in this chapter about fools and how to define fools and sluggards and people who have wickedness in their hearts, especially whisperers and slanderers and gossips. They're going to go out and accomplish all of those seven destructive tendencies. So knowing that, says verse 25, when he speaks graciously to you, don't believe him. Once he has shown you who he is, believe that. And when he speaks to you good, gracious, flattering words, don't believe it because his heart is full of abominations. There are seven wicked abominations in his heart. The words that are coming off his mouth are not for the purpose of building people up, lifting people up, educating people, bringing people along in wisdom. Instead, they are for the purpose of tearing people down because there is that wickedness in their heart. Verse 26 then says of him, though his hatred covers itself with guile. In other words, even though he's quite clever about his lying, and even though there is this hatred, this abomination in his heart, he's going to cover it 
with his gracious words, with his lying phraseology. Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. And I can't read that without thinking. Be sure you know your sin will find you out. Even Solomon says that somebody who's wicked in their heart, who uses their lips in a gracious way in order to cover up with chicanery, with guile, in the end they're going to be found out. Because the simple truth is you can't talk about people very long before it's going to get back around that you're the kind of person who talks about other people and that you do it in a way that damages other people. And once that happens, you're going to be called to account. The phrase, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly, is Solomon's way of saying, among the assembly of Israel, they're going to root out, they're going to find out these wicked people, and they're going to make it public that they are wicked people that they are people who are willing to damage their neighbors. Rather than acting out of love and sacrifice, they're willing to act out of complete selfish interests. And once they're found out, they're going to be revealed before everybody. Verse 27 then says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. The reason that that proverb is a perfect way of summarizing this whole chapter is that Solomon is saying, and the scribes of Hezekiah are putting a fine point, an exclamation mark on it, whatever damage you do to other people is ultimately going to come back on you. You're going to dig a pit, and then you're going to fall into it. Or you're going to be pushing a stone, and then the stone is going to rock back and crush you. We have a modern phrase, which is, what goes around comes around. And that's what Solomon is really getting at. So we wrap up with verse 28, which says, A lying tongue hates those that it crushes. Whatever the reasons, whatever the excuses, whatever the self-justification for people backbiting, for people talking about other people, for being a talebearer, for being a whisperer, for doing damage to other people with your mouth, whatever wise in your own estimation excuses you can make for your own behavior, the simple truth is if you use your tongue to lie about other people, it is the sure and certain demonstration that you really hate those people. You don't love them. You're not trying to help them. You're not trying to correct them. You're not trying to bring them along in the things of God. You're demonstrating through your words what is actually going on in your wicked heart, in your unkind and unloving heart, and you are demonstrating by your words the hatred you have for other people because you're willing to damage them and then excuse yourself. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. As I said before, one of the tricks, one of the techniques that people will use in order to try to cover up the damage that they're doing, one of those tricks is flattery. 
They will speak well of you while they're stabbing you in the back. Because they think that through their flattery, through their overly gracious words, that they are actually endearing themselves to you. And so they think they're getting away with their damage. They do the damage. Then they speak some kind and flattering words and tell you how great you are and how wonderful everything about you is. And then they walk away either utterly ignorant or completely self-involved in their own tail-bearing. They walk away not acknowledging the damage that they have done to you and to other people. So what's all that about? What's the upshot of all that? Well, I think we would all do well to learn to be careful with our words, to make sure that the words that we are speaking to other people are uplifting, instructive, corrective, bringing people back to the important things of God in this lifetime, and not using our God-given gift of speech to damage other people, to undermine other people, to speak ill of other people, to tell lies about other people, and then attempt to cover it up by our clever use of other language and flatteries. The Bible couldn't be any more clear about it. The Bible spells out the problem. Proverbs make it very clear that you're acting foolishly, you're acting dangerously, you're acting like a madman. You're acting like a person with a wicked heart when you use your lips in destructive ways. And that, again, not to put too fine a point on it, but that is a lesson that we could all benefit from. Okay. See you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.